When Texas quarterback Vince Young scored a touchdown with 19 seconds to play in the 2006 Rose Bowl, the Longhorns won not only the BCS championship, but one of the best games of the modern era. The late, great Keith Jackson's call remains one of my favorite college football earworms. He's going for the corner. He's going for the corner. He's got it. That play cinched the Longhorns' 41-38 upset of the two-time defending national champion, the media darling, the football dynasty, the team that didn't know how to lose, the USC Trojans. In the hype leading up to that game, USC arrived in Pasadena on a month-long crescendo. Would a victory certify the Trojans as the GOAT? Greatest of all time? No team had won three consecutive national championships since the Associated Press poll began in 1936. A victory would be USC's 35th in a row, which would put the Trojans one season away from challenging Oklahoma's record unbeaten run of 47 games. It was all right there within the grasp of USC, and the Trojans failed to grasp it, thanks to Young. He threw for 267 yards and ran for 200. Young brought Texas back from a 12-point deficit in the final four minutes. You didn't need history to tell you the greatness of that performance. We knew it that night. What we didn't understand on that night, Wednesday, January 4th, 2006, is how that game served as the beginning of the end of the USC dynasty. For three years afterward, the Trojans remained favorites to win it all, continued to contend to win it all, seemed destined to win it all, and yet, three times, USC fell just short of winning it all. Then, as if it happened overnight, USC stopped being USC. In 2009, the Trojans lost four games. Head coach Pete Carroll left for the NFL early in 2010, weeks before the NCAA slammed USC with a penalty so harsh that it removed any question about whether the good times had ended. To this day, the Trojans have never been as close to winning a national championship as on that January night, 13 years ago, when Vince Young broke every Cardinal and Gold heart. The end of a dynasty is seen more easily from the rearview mirror than it is in real time. Welcome to Down and Distance, a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel. Today's episode is The Fall of Troy. In it, we will explore how USC slipped from the edge of immortality back into the college football mainstream. Every college football season, it takes a lot of effort to get each team properly equipped and ready to hit the field as an efficient playing machine. Same for your business. For more than 90 years, Centos has worked to help businesses big and small look more professional and run more smoothly and efficiently. Great players should focus their energy on the important things, the scouting report, the fine details that will help separate them from the competition. Centos will handle all the fine details, allowing the team, 
your business, to focus on what's most important. Centos has the products and services to help your employees stay safe, from first aid to training and compliance courses. Centos is a proud Fortune 500 company with more than 43,000 employees operating over 500 locations across the United States and Canada. More than 1 million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence. Get Centos and get ready for the workday. Learn how Centos can help get your business ready at Centos.com. In the last 10 seasons, USC has won one Pac-12 conference championship, three fewer than Oregon and two fewer than Stanford. The Trojans rebounded from one of the sternest penalties that the NCAA ever meted out, losing 40% of their scholarships for three consecutive seasons. USC rose from that penalty to win the conference in 2017 and has fallen again. At this juncture, USC is just another team, a long way from the dominance the Trojans exhibited in the 2000s. But I don't want to tell you the story of how the Trojans got where they are today. I want to unpack how they got from being 19 seconds short of three straight national championships in 2005 to being just barely not good enough in 2006, 2007, and 2008 to having the dynasty collapse in 2009. In the scope of 150 years of college football, USC's success under Pete Carroll feels like last week. Nevertheless, I feel like I should sketch out just what made USC seem so historic in nature. I could roll out the stats, and there's no question they're impressive. The seven straight Pac-10 titles. The five straight years in the top 10. The 16 first-round draft choices who played for Carroll. Oh yeah, and the back-to-back national championships. But the numbers are just numbers. They don't convey what USC's dominance felt like, at once intimidating and irresistible. Football teams can be intimidating, not just to opponents, but to the public, not USC. Carroll and the Trojans turned greatness into entertainment. They were enjoyable to watch, fun to cover. Film and music stars showed up at practice or on the game sideline, all part of the show. Will Ferrell, Snoop Dogg, Bill Withers, 50 Cent. Not to mention that the Trojan roster appeared to be deeper than deep. The talent seemed inexhaustible. Carroll signed pretty much who he wanted. Find me an 18-year-old who could resist all those trappings of stardom. But a funny thing happened on the way to perpetual greatness. In the three seasons after the Vince Young game, and no disrespect to the other Texas Longhorns who own national championship rings, But who do you think of when you think of that game? In 2006, 2007, and 2008, USC played well enough to extend its streak of Pac-10 championships to seven. In each of those seasons, the Trojans finished third or fourth in the final AP poll. But in each of those seasons, the Trojans slipped just enough to fall short of qualifying for the championship format, which consisted of two teams only. Let us all pause in memory of the late, not-so-great BCS. The difference between the Trojans who won championships and the Trojans who didn't is small and difficult to define. But there are clues to examine. 
especially in light of what happened to USC in 2009 when the Trojans fell to a 9-4 and record that included two defeats by at least four touchdowns. Season by season, the cracks in the foundation of USC grew bigger and wider. Both on the sideline and on the field, the Trojans began to slip in 2006, the year after the fateful loss to the Longhorns. Let's look at the coaches. A head coach is only as good as the assistants who carry out his vision. There is a pattern among successful coaches. They find the right assistants and they keep them. Bobby Bowden did that at Florida State. Tom Osborne at Nebraska. Dabo Sweeney is doing it at Clemson. They have to replace a coach every couple of years, sure. But find a winning coach, and odds are you'll find a staff of guys working for him who mesh well and aren't going anywhere. The staff that Pete Carroll assembled at USC nearly 20 years ago included a good mix of veterans and young, bright coaches. Norm Chow, who coached alongside Lavelle Edwards for two decades at BYU, has been as good a quarterback whisperer as there is in the game. Joining Chow on the offensive staff were a pair of 20-something offensive assistants, close friends whose offensive savvy was matched only by their confidence. Their names were Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian. You may recognize those names as the first two guys to succeed Carroll at USC. You may recognize them as young head coaches who didn't handle the spotlight and pressure of the big stage. But we're not there yet. In the early 2000s, Kiff and Sark not only had a grasp of offense unusual for their age, but a youthful affability to which recruits could easily relate. Those guys could bring in the talent. The USC National Championship teams of 2003 and 2004, with Chow, Kiffin, and Sarkeesian at the helm of the offense, had unmatched firepower. After the second national championship, both Kiffin and Sarkeesian had chances to leave, to advance their careers. Pete Carroll didn't want to let them go, so Carroll tried to thread the needle. He took away play-calling duties from Chow, gave them to Kiffin and Sarkeesian, and gambled that he could keep all three. It was a gamble, all right, and Carroll lost. Chow, in a matter of days, left to become an NFL assistant. In 2005, Kiffin and Sarkeesian ran the USC offense. With the talent on that offense, Leinert, Bush, White, etc., etc., I'm reasonably certain I could have been the offensive coordinator. But you know what? Kiffin Sark did a great job. The Trojans scored more than 50 points in seven games and never scored fewer than 34. But you can also make the case that maybe... Just maybe, Chow would have been able to make the difference in a last-second Rose Bowl loss to Texas. The obvious question is the play that opened the door for the Longhorns, the fourth and two at the Texas 45 with 2.19 to play. Make the first down, and the Trojans could run out the clock and win the game. Reggie Bush, the Heisman Trophy winner, remained on the sideline. Glendale White carried the ball and came up less than a yard short. Twice tonight, SC's gone for it on fourth and one, and twice they've come up short. About six inches, maybe a foot. For 13 years, Trojan fans have asked, where was Reggie? 
Author Steve Delson wrote an oral history of the Carroll years. He quoted Chow as saying that, obviously, Chow's word, both backs should have been in the game, just to make Texas account for both of them. Kiffin and Sark ran the offense again in 2006, an offense that didn't have Leinart, Bush, or White. Leinart and Bush went in the first 10 picks of the NFL draft, and White went in the middle of the second round. Yet the Trojans continued to dominate. Quarterback John David Booty proved to be a capable replacement for Leinart, especially given the burden placed on him. The USC running game took a step back without Bush and White. Now there's some penetrating analysis. Still, the Trojans found something that worked over the last month of the season. A midseason loss at Oregon State by two points proved to be the shallowest of potholes. Coming down the stretch, the Trojans beat four opponents, three of them ranked by an average of 25 points per game. Only one game stood between USC and a chance for redemption for the Texas loss. On December 2nd, USC took a 10-1 record and a number 2 ranking into its regular season finale at Crosstown arch-rival UCLA. A victory would propel USC into the BCS championship game against number 1 Ohio State. No one outside the UCLA locker room thought the Bruins had a chance. USC had beaten UCLA seven straight years. In the previous season, that 2005 Trojan team gilded its mythic greatness by humiliating the Bruins, 66-19. The Trojans gained 679 yards in one game. Yeah, the Trojans had lost to Texas on that Rose Bowl field 11 months earlier, but prior to that, the Trojans hadn't lost in Pasadena since 1998. Not to mention that UCLA, at 6-5, and five, scared exactly no one. The Bruins had a fourth-year head coach, Carl Durrell, with a career record of 28-20. This UCLA team struggled to score points, but the defense, led by coordinator Dwayne Walker, had shown some spark in the month of November. Walker decided to take away what the Trojans did best. He would never let Booty, the USC quarterback, get comfortable. Walker said after the game, It wasn't me against Pete Carroll or me against Lane Kiffin. It was me against Booty. And on that Saturday, in this rivalry, Walker and his Bruins produced the game of their lives. The defensive front constantly attacked, never letting Booty set his feet. He completed only one deep pass. The running game never solved the Bruins' scheme either. USC clung to a 9-7 lead at the half, but no one in the Trojan locker room panicked. The coaches felt as if their players just had to relax and play the way they had played all season. They just needed to be patient, but soon things would click. Coach, what specifically has been giving you guys trouble? Well, they, they've just—they've had some chances to, to work on some stuff. They're throwing a couple new things at us. That's all. It's not, it's not that big a deal. We got to execute a little bit better. You know, we got to win on our third downs. We haven't done that yet. On this particular Saturday afternoon, there would be no clicking. Carroll remained his aggressive self, which usually worked fine. But twice against UCLA, Carroll turned down a field goal attempt in order to go for it on fourth and short. 
Both times, the Bruins turned back the Trojans. At the end of the game, with UCLA ahead 13-9, USC began to drive for a game-winning, season-saving touchdown. The Trojans methodically drove to the Bruins' 18-yard line. Less than a minute remained in the game. Booty took the snap and looked to pass. A backup linebacker, Eric McNeil, drifted into no man's land just behind the defensive end. He wasn't supposed to be there. Booty threw a pass to his left. McNeil, where he shouldn't have been, tipped the ball straight up, then caught it as he fell to the turf. Deflected, intercepted, on the deflection. What a play by Eric McNeil. The USC's first turnover of the game may have cost them a spot in the, in the national championship game. It was stunning. I counted among the top upsets I've covered. No one was more stunned than the visiting Trojans. The prevailing sentiment in the USC locker room was, one, what just happened? And two, how did the clock run out? When an inexplicable loss happens, the typical coach throws up his hands and provides their favorite non-explanation of an explanation. It was just one of those games. In the previous two seasons, USC hadn't had one of those games. In 2006, they had had one already when they lost at Oregon State. And now, with everything at stake, they had another. The Trojans did not go to the Fiesta Bowl to play Ohio State for the BCS title. They returned to the Rose Bowl, where they humbled Michigan, finished 11-2, and finished fourth in the final poll. Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, there's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com CFB. That's linkedin.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. In 2007, an untimely injury exposed the Trojans' lack of depth, both on the sideline and on the field. That year, Lane Kiffin left to become head coach of the Oakland Raiders. Steve Sarkeesian took over control of the offense, USC again lost two games. If there was a year to lose to, then 2007 was it. The national champion LSU Tigers lost two games, one of them on Thanksgiving weekend. But the Trojans lost two games in October, thanks to an injury to Booty, and their title hopes never recovered. Frankly, they never recovered from the first loss, nor should they have. 
Stanford had gone 1 and 11 in 2006. Stanford had been so bad that after that season, the university administration discussed dropping out of FBS football. But they decided to give the big time another chance, hiring a brash former NFL quarterback who had won big in non scholarship football at the University of San Diego. His name was Jim Harbaugh. In the fifth game of the season, Stanford came south to play number two USC. Vegas favored the Trojans by 41 points. USC dominated the first half of the game, yet led only nine to nothing at intermission. Stanford kept hanging around. It could be because in the first quarter, Booty completed his throwing motion and smashed his hand into a defender's helmet, breaking a bone. When Booty came out of the locker room for the second half, The USC coaches kept a close eye on him. They watched him warm up. They wanted to determine whether he could throw the ball with a broken bone in his right hand. Booty threw 10-yard passes. The ball came out of his hand just fine. He said he could play, and off he went. Early in the third quarter, on a third and two, Booty tried to muscle a pass into the right flat. It was a pass longer than 10 yards. The ball didn't respond. Booty's hand didn't respond. The ball fluttered into the flat where Stanford's Austin Yancey snatched it and sprinted 31 yards for a Cardinal touchdown. Suddenly, Stanford trailed only 9-7. to And yet Booty stayed in the game, and USC kept throwing. Booty threw four interceptions in that second half. The Cardinal came back and won 24-23, with a fourth down touchdown pass with 48 seconds to play. Remember, Stanford was a 41-point underdog. That was the biggest college football upset, as measured by point spreads, since Vegas opened its doors. As with UCLA the year before, USC suffered an inconceivable loss. Blame overconfidence, blame a freak injury, and blame coaches who didn't react properly to the injury broken bone that wasn't serious enough to pull Booty out of the Stanford game proved serious enough that Booty missed the next three games. Sophomore Mark Sanchez started in his place, and at number five Oregon, Sanchez found out how difficult it is to play a ranked team on the road in front of raucous fans. Sanchez threw two second-half interceptions that spelled the difference in a 24-17 loss. Booty returned, the defense still played well, The Trojans won their last five games, and they finished third in the final poll. An outstanding season, but in a year when national champion LSU also lost two games, another missed opportunity. In 2008, the Trojans lost only one game, again at Oregon State. But two teams with tougher schedules, Oklahoma and Florida, also lost only one game. The Sooners and the Gators played for the national title. The Trojans played in the Rose Bowl for the fourth consecutive season. Eight years passed before the Trojans played in another Rose Bowl. You know who works hard? Rookies. Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove. Knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why after 130 years... 
Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit Carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. Then came 2009, the year when what Pete Carroll had built truly began to fall apart. The Trojans suffered two critical defections after the 2008 season. Steve Sarkeesian left to become head coach of the University of Washington. More important, quarterback Mark Sanchez, a third-year sophomore, defied Carroll's wishes and his advice and declared himself eligible for the NFL draft. Carroll replaced Sarkeesian with Jeremy Bates, a young NFL assistant. Put it this way, that was the only season Bates ever coached college football. In the nine years since 2009, Bates spent four years in the NFL and five years out of coaching. But back to 2009, Bates ran the offense and Sanchez, who would have been a favorite to win the Heisman Trophy, left for the NFL. Behind him, the Trojans had two veterans with little experience and a freshman who had left high school early, who didn't turn 18 until the third week of the season. A good-looking blind kid with a big smile named Matt Barkley. Carroll threw his chips down on Barkley, and Barkley performed about as well as a freshman could perform, which is to say, what is a program like USC doing with its best quarterback being an 18-year-old freshman? Carroll got steamrolled by the changing times. Not two decades earlier, successful coaches created quarterbacks by assembly line. You redshirted, you watched from the sideline for two years, and you played for two years. Bobby Bowden down at Florida State had that system down to a science. But players who sniffed the possibility of leaving early for the NFL didn't want to learn from the sideline. They wanted to play. Carroll appealed to that instinct by promising freshmen he would give them a chance. But that same ploy came back to bite him at the other end of the player's career. Sanchez left a year too soon, and the two quarterbacks behind him, Aaron Corp and Mitch Mustaine, simply didn't pan out. One of the biggest differences between college football and the NFL is that NFL coaches can cut their mistakes. If a player doesn't perform, sometimes even after a bad practice, he's gone. In college football, a coach must live with his recruiting mistakes. As I said a few minutes ago, Carroll could sign virtually whomever he desired. But did he want the right guys? If you follow recruiting rankings, you know that they can be self-fulfilling prophecies. That is, if a top team is recruiting a player, therefore, he is a top prospect. I don't know a lot about transitive properties, but I do know that great recruits don't always make great players. In 2007, USC signed 10 five-star recruits, the best of the best, and five four-stars. Two of them became all-conference. 
In 2008, USC signed 20 players. Five of them became all-conference. Nine of them never started a game for the Trojans. The marquee recruit of the 2009 class, Barkley, never made all-conference either. Of course, Barkley played in the league at the same time as Andrew Luck, so that's not exactly a knock on Barkley. Actually, the Trojans' biggest problems that season came on defense. Oregon, in its first season under head coach Chip Kelly in his up-tempo spread offense, beat USC 47-20. Two weeks later, Stanford, in its third season under Harbaugh, in its first season with Luck at quarterback, road-graded the USC defense. The Cardinal won 55-21, mostly by running the ball down the Trojans' throat. Harbaugh refused to take his foot off the gas in the fourth quarter. He wanted 50 points, and he got it. That is known as the what's-your-deal game, the question that an angry Carroll asked Harbaugh during their quick, cursory post-game handshake. That was the game that announced to the public that the dynasty had ended. The months after the 2009 season sealed the fate of the USC dynasty, Carroll left for the Seattle Seahawks a few weeks ahead of the devastating NCAA penalties. Kiffin returned to USC after one year at Tennessee to replace his mentor, forever after making Kiffin's name an epithet on the Tennessee campus. Hamstrung by the scholarship restrictions, Kiffin couldn't have maintained the Trojans' elite status, even if he hadn't been a young coach prone to immature mistakes. USC Athletic Director Pat Hayden famously fired Kiffin in the middle of the night at the airport after a loss at Arizona State. Sarkeesian returned from Washington to replace Kiffin, and Hayden fired him after one and a half disappointing seasons in which Sarkeesian had public issues with alcohol that embarrassed the university. We are 10 years removed from Pete Carroll's last season at USC. For nearly five years, from November of 2002 into October of 2007, USC never fell out of the top 10. But even then, the decay had begun to take root in the Trojan athletic program. We didn't see it at the time. But from here, 15 years removed from USC's last national championship, that decay is crystal clear. For Down and Distance, I'm Ivan Mazel. Down and Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down and Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Mantell, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper and Gabe Bassane. The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel. On our next episode, I'll tell you the story of how the greatest dynasty in the history of college football came apart one night in a Chicago nightclub. The culprit? Fruit salad. Sooner sabotage on the next Down in Distance.